The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So um, about 8.30, maybe a little bit after that, we'll break into small groups. And uh, remember that it's not really an optional thing. And I know it's, it's for some people who are more introverted or shy, it can, you know, some people love it, and it's like the highlight. And other people, it's really hard to sit in a group of three and talk about your mind and talk about your practice in that way with other people. But it, it brings a lot of integrity to the, the class, knowing that every other week we sit down and in a way, we're responsible to show up as a human being who has a mind and a body and who's paying attention, you know, with this practice of being mindful, being open, and also using the teachings that we're hearing on Monday night and the study that you do on your own to illuminate the experience of the body and mind. So that our sharing is really coming out of that illumination where the teachings, the concepts we're hearing about, then in a sense are informing or exposing our experience in a particular way. We're seeing or perceiving our experience in terms of the Buddhist teachings. And then to have this responsibility, and it's never perfect as best we can to talk about it with each other. And just as important to hear other people talking about it. That's also a practice. So when you're in the small group, practice being in your experience of the body, because here's the interesting thing, just generally about awareness practice. If we're intimate with one aspect, being open, being aware, mindfully aware, is not the same as being focused. Because if I'm focused on my body, I can be so focused on my body, I'm unaware that you're there and talking. But if we're being mindful of the body, intimate with the body, open to it, then it's not, if the mind isn't actively constructing like what I should be paying attention to and what I shouldn't be paying attention to, the mind will naturally open to everything. So if we're there in conversation, having the small group, and we're really present with the body, then we're going to be really present with everything else in the moment. Undefended, clearly aware, not caught in states of greed or aversion, because the mind sees it. It's intimate. It's awake. So if there is a reaction to what the person, who the person we think the person is or what they're saying, that reaction will be seen. It will be part of what's being known in the moment. So it's it's a real gift, these small groups. And then, of course, it's great training for all the ways in our lives we interact with each other. And it'd be very appropriate to be sitting there, intimate with the person, intimate with your body, and aware that it feels like this. And don't try to... Remember, we're not controlling the feeling... Because feeling arises lawfully, conditionally. So don't be embarrassed if there's an unpleasant feeling in moments. Or pleasant feeling. You so like listening to this person speak. Or whatever. 
because it's just a feeling and it's lawful. It's arising because of causes and conditions. You're not making that particular feeling arise. Right now, we all have a feeling. It's also conditional. It's arising because of what's been set in motion previously. And this is so interesting to observe, like to, for these eight weeks, and in particular for the small group, to observe the conditioning effect of feeling. Like if we're having an unpleasant feeling while somebody is talking, or having an unpleasant feeling in the moments before it's our turn to talk, to the degree the mind's identified with that unpleasant feeling, then we're literally constructing the personality that hates public speaking, hates having to share my inner truth or whatever, because of how the mind is relating to the feeling right then and there. Or if you're sharing and and it seems like everybody is liking you and finding what you're saying really interesting and funny and wise and that's a really pleasant feeling and you're identified with that pleasant feeling, then you're conditioning, you're literally constructing the personality, the habit of personality to be dependent on people liking you, thinking you're funny, thinking you're wise, thinking whatever. So if you ever wonder, like, how did I get so neurotic? We get neurotic. We get the way we are because of the conditioning effect of relating to feeling tone with greed and aversion and and distraction or delusion. Not thinking that neutral is relevant, not to be connected, to be intimate with. So it's like such a great opportunity to be in our small group because it will be a little bit more formal than our daily life. So we sort of learn our chops, you know, we get some momentum in the small group so that in the more wildness of our daily life, when we're interacting with a lot of different people and there's other, you know, triggers and other qualities in those moments, less support, we can be observing in as many moments as possible how the mind is relating to feeling. And when it's relating with greed, anger, and delusion, we're literally constructing our ordinary personality, the sort of reinforcing the self-view, the personality that comes out of self-view. And here's the other thing. To whatever degree we're intimate with feeling, and instead of relating and reacting with greed, anger, and delusion... We're sustaining a wise, intimate, ongoing presence with feeling. And although we might notice the impulse to react to unpleasantness with aversion and pleasantness with greed, we're just noticing that but not falling into it, not getting swept away by that habit. Then we're quite literally conditioning liberation in the mind. It's Liberation is the mind that doesn't get pushed around by feeling. You know, so if you're interested, like just in speculating, I wonder what the mind of a Buddha or an enlightened being, a fully awake being is, 
It's the mind that has feelings. These feelings arise for an enlightened being in every moment in the same way they do for us. And they arise because of how our minds have been conditioned. If I pulled out a a big, beautiful bowl of caviar, some of us would be repulsed. Maybe there would be a few in the room that would be attracted, find it pleasant, the smell, the whatever, pleasant. But an enlightened being wouldn't be confused by the unpleasantness or pleasantness or neutrality. Right? And an ordinary being, most of us, most of the time, we would, whatever feeling arose, we take it personally. And to whatever degree we take the feeling personally, we personally then react depending on what that feeling was. So, in these eight weeks, you know, we're literally observing how the person who suffers is getting constructed through the way the mind relates to feeling and how the awakening process, the liberated version of Mark or the liberated version of whomever, how that actually gets set in motion because awakening freedom is also a lawful unfolding. It has causes in the same way that being a caught in a suffering state, a difficult, heavy, oppressed state of mind, that also has causes. Meaning it has to be set in motion. It has to be constructed. And here's the thing. There isn't anybody doing either one of these. So if we're moving in the direction of freedom, if the mind is unfolding in that way because there's feeling tone, but the mind isn't getting pushed around, it's not confused by the different feelings that are coming up in each moment of experience, it's not you becoming free. It's just that's the nature of a mind that doesn't react, doesn't get pushed around by feeling. In the same way with the mind that is reacting. That's not you making a mistake. It's nature. So we don't want, we want to understand, like we're we're unpacking or deconstructing a natural process. And because we've gotten these pointing out instructions from the Buddha, we can really hone in very quickly, you know, of all the things to be mindful of, one of the most important things to be mindful of is the conditioning effect of feeling. And like I mentioned last week, in every moment of experience, uh, arising with that contact, the eyes having contact with the visual form, the ears having contact with an auditory experience, or the mind knowing a cognitive experience, uh, some mental activity, some content or emotion or body having a tactile experience, a taste, a smell. So whatever the experience is that's being known, there will always be a perception, like the mind will recognize. So that experience of seeing Mary, like initially the scene is just, you know, the color and shape. 
And then right with that, almost synonymous with that, is the perception. So whatever that particular shape and color and configuration is as a visual form, it triggers some memory, right? So then I, you know, even if I didn't know her, never had seen this form before, I'd know that's a person. I might assign a gender to that person, or I might, but all that would be that recognition or that perception process. And right there, right with that perceiving is a feeling tone based on how the mind, it's really how the past informs the present moment. Because that perceiving and the feeling tone is sort of the effect of the past on the present moment. And so there's nothing we can do about that, right? Because that's the effect from the past. And then the question is, how is my mind now in the present understanding the perception and the feeling tone? What's it doing with the inevitable feeling tone that's arising with the contact, contact and the perception. And, of course, there are a lot of different things that we can do with it. We can, but just to keep it simple, we can set emotion suffering or we can set emotion freedom. And don't get tight about whether you set emotion suffering or freedom. Instead, resolve to learn from it. So, If you're there having a sense experience, which we're having in every moment, and there's a perception and a feeling tone, and that whole, what that triggers, like the mental formations, the the sort of momentum, how the mind is relating, let's say it's in the direction of suffering. The mind's getting reactive and tight and controlling or something like that. Then we want to understand it. We don't want to hate ourselves for becoming a suffering being. We want to understand the lawfulness that when these conditions are like this and there's this understanding and this reaction arising out of that understanding, then the experience of a suffering being is born. And it's like this. So whenever we are a suffering being, we want to see it how that's an inevitable, lawful unavoidable consequence of those conditions, those supporting conditions being set in motion. Oh. And see how that takes away the habit of hating, hating ourselves. Because we see, oh yeah, I get how that happened. I get how I'm now, you know, this system of mind-body is acting out quite literally like a great actor. We're acting out the reality of being a suffering being. I'm the person who's really oppressed by my life, who really hates it, who feels betrayed or doesn't feel I got what I need, I have what I need. But now the mind is comprehending that as a natural, unavoidable, perfect, like the perfect expression of what had been said in motion, not a mistake. So when it's like this, then this happens. So then the, then it leads to this moment. Now, here I am, acting out, being the suffering human being. Then the question is, what do I do with this? How do I relate to this? Well, what does this feel like? Well, this really hurts. Okay, 
what am I going to do? How should I relate to the fact that this really hurts, being a suffering human being? I can hate it. I can feel guilty about it. I can hope that nobody recognizes that I'm a suffering human being because I've, I've sort of been investing in people thinking that I'm cool and uh, skill, skillful. But we notice that whenever those impulses arises, it's like <laughs> the squeeze in the heart just gets tighter. Like, oh, maybe that's not the way. That, that's not the way to relate to being a suffering being. So maybe then it occurs to us to be compassionate, like, this really hurts, and I care about that. It isn't easy being a human being. And then something else is set in motion, and it feels better. So how to let feeling tone both give us some um, information, right? Because it is a feeling. The feeling is information, but we can very easily misinterpret that information or misuse that information. So the question is, how does it feel? And what is the skillful way to relate to this feeling? What, like, how can this feeling inform the moment? What do we do with this feeling? This is from a book that Joseph Goldstein and Jack Hornfield wrote a long time ago, um, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. And this is the, they're talking about mindfulness, the four foundations. So there's this paragraph on the second foundation of mindfulness that I explained last week is the foundation of feeling tone, being awake to feeling tone. So they say here, the second field of mindfulness is awareness of feeling. These are not feelings in the sense of emotions, but refer in this meditative context to the quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality arising in every moment of experience. The awareness of these feelings is so important because they condition our reactions of grasping, aversion, and ignorance. It is because something is pleasant that we grasp it, and because something is unpleasant that we condemn it or dislike it. And when an experience is neither pleasant or unpleasant, we often become forgetful or our mind wanders. If the second foundation of mindfulness is cultivated, then we can feel the pleasantness or unpleasantness of different experiences without having a conditioned reaction. We have a greater ability to feel what's going on with balance and equanimity. Awareness of feeling in this way also provides a key for unhooking the mind once it has already been caught in a reactive state. Suppose the mind is lost in a lustful state with strong and delightful images enticing the attention. In addition to noting the bodily sensations and images that are present, if we can clearly and precisely notice the pleasantness of these sensations or pictures, then we can, ver- then we can see very directly that it is the feeling of pleasantness which is capturing the mind and conditioning the grasping. By meticulously noticing and noting this aspect of pleasantness, the mind unhooks from the object, lets go of the grasping, and is aware of the pleasant feeling simply as another object of observation rather than something to hold on to. So like when we do have an obsession, like 
Uh, some of you know I gave away my car this summer and just starting to get used to not having a car. I mean, I have options, but I don't have my very own car to do whatever I want with anymore. And uh, it's just I'm just very interesting what it does to my mind. And, uh, you know, I'm a grown-up. I should have a car or something like that. It's like part of being respectful, you know, to have a car. But anyway, so it's just an experiment. I'm just playing with it for as long as I play with it. And uh, But I notice, it's like I think about, like, yeah, okay, I'm, I don't have a car, but I'm going to get a car someday, right? It's like th- that's the deal in my mind that, yeah, whenever you want a car, you can get a car. So I want to think about, like, well, what car will I get when I get a car? <laughs> and I notice the delightful feelings, like, oh, that would be a nice car to have, you know. I mean, I notice all kinds of things, pleasant and unpleasant. But when we have an obsession, so each of us, it will be different. But it's interesting, like the image of the car, what I like about that particular car, it's four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive or it's, you know, hybrid and it gets really high gas mileage or people will think I'm cool that I have that car, you know, that I got a used car instead of a new car or, you know, a small car instead of a big car, you know, all the different sort of conditioned reactions and they're all pleasant or unpleasant depending on what I'm thinking about. And here's the thing. It's like whenever I have a feeling because of the image, I think of a particular car and then there's a nice feeling. Yeah, that's cool. That would be great. And then that nice feeling conditions the mind to want to think or imagine the picture of the car or having the image of having that car. And then you get the feeling. And then the feeling makes you want to think of it and back and forth, back and forth. So there's this feedback loop between feeling and the mental proliferation. We have a negative, something we're afraid of, and then we think, right? So there's that unpleasant feeling of fear, and then we have the image again. Wynn and I saw a zombie movie the other night, True Confessions. It was very interesting. And... uh, and so, you know, you have the scary feelings, uh, the, the unpleasant feeling, and then the image, one of the images from the movie comes back, and then, you, then the feeling comes with it, and then the image, and that dance. And so the training, as uh, Jack Hornfield and Joseph Goldstein say in this chapter, is to stick with the feeling. Like if we make peace with the feeling, so the zombie face comes up, you know, and then... We just stay with the unpleasantness of it. And because now we're not afraid of the, we're training the mind to not be afraid of the unpleasantness, to be able to be intimate and steady with it, then I don't need to think or remember the image. I don't need to go back to the mental content because the reason the mind goes back to the pleasant image or the pleasant thought or the unpleasant image, unpleasant thought, is because it's not okay just being intimate with the feeling. And the interesting thing is this is also true with pleasant as it is with unpleasant. I mean, we get why we wouldn't want to be intimate with unpleasant. But it's not easy to be intimate with pleasant. Like if you have a really nice interaction with someone. I had lunch with Alice today, really pleasant. Some of you know Alice Vollmer, a longtime leader here. And it was very pleasant lunch. And, uh, you know, so there's like that nice afterglow. And... Uh, but it's like we want to go back and revisit, but it's over. 
So we have to practice being intimate with the pleasant feeling without needing to do anything with the pleasant feeling. And it's a real training to, because we feel like this is the delusion. We feel by going back to the memory, the image, that somehow will keep the pleasantness going. But all we do is perpetuate the hungry ghost in us, the graspy, needy, uneasy, thirsty. Excuse me, thirsty. That's the craving. The word the Buddha used for craving is the word thirst. Yeah. Let me just finish this paragraph here. So again, I'll just reread that sentence. Awareness of feeling is in this way also provides a key for unhooking the mind once it has already been caught in, the, in a reactive state. Suppose the mind is lost in a lustful state with the strong and delightful images enticing the attention. In addition to noticing the bodily sensations and images that are present, if we can clearly and precisely notice the pleasantness of these sensations or pictures, then we can very directly then we can see very directly that it is the feeling of pleasantness which is capturing the mind and conditioning the grasping. By meticulously noticing and noting this aspect of pleasantness, the mind unhooks from the object, lets go of the grasping, and is aware of the pleasant feeling simply as another object of observation rather than as something to hold on to. And then they end by saying, when we understand how desire is conditioned by feeling, we see that underneath the wanting mind is a place of choice. Right? And this choice only exists when we're mindful of feeling. In situations where we, where we find ourselves caught in a reaction of strong clinging or aversion, the second foundation of mindfulness can be a powerful tool of investigation and freedom. Mindfulness of feeling is freedom. So if you have a bumper sticker that says S-H-I-T happens, right? then you need to add pleasantness happens and neutrality happens, right? Because all three happen all the time. And I thought it would be good for the next couple of weeks as our homework to really tune into the pleasantness happens, not the S-H-I-T happens, not the difficulty happens, the unpleasantness but to realize that even if your life, even if you're in a bad spell and a lot of what you would call difficult circumstances are going on in your life, even then and there, pleasantness is happening all the time because it's a relative thing. Like in this moment, I could attend to the unpleasantness of my visual experience, my auditory experience, my tactile experience, the cognitive experience, or... And that may be, you know, for those of us who are aversive types, that may be relatively easy for me. But I could also train my mind to notice objects of experience that are pleasant. So let's do that for the next few weeks to undo, for those of us especially who have a tendency towards being aversive, seeing what is unpleasant, to consciously notice what evokes a pleasant feeling. It may be really simple, like you like your t-shirt or your blouse that you're wearing now. And it's pleasant knowing that you're wearing it, that seeing it or feeling it against your skin. Or you're sitting next to somebody that you like, and it's pleasant. Or you have leftovers in the fridge that you like, 
And just the thought that they're there is a pleasant thought. Or your cat or dog or friend, you know, (laughs) whatever you cuddle with, is there, a blanket. And that's a pleasant feeling. And so to really, and then to look at the conditioning, like as an open question, how to relate to this. And this is something you can bring up in your small groups tonight. I'll just give you a few other topics. That basically anything, what you've learned around feeling tone and certain feelings that you have a hard time with. But here's some just topics, and I'll I'll give you a few seconds to reflect on some of these questions. So, just to when strong or clear feelings arose for you today, maybe even right now, to kind of get a clear sense of what comes before the experience of a strong feeling of pleasantness or unpleasantness? Like what has to be there in order for there to be pleasantness? What has to be in your experience before or during when you have an unpleasant feeling? So what is the proximate cause for feeling? What do you need for feeling? I mean, the technical answer is you need sense contact. But just experientially, like, I saw this. I was walking. It was so nice yesterday, pleasant. And then there was this dog poop on the sidewalk, you know, and I smelt it or I saw it or whatever. Or I was walking home last night, as I was, and I saw the moon, and I saw all these people out looking, and it was so pleasant to be walking and feeling so safe and even kids were out and right and just to notice the the relationship between the visual experience the mental interpretation and the pleasantness so that's something you might share like when you've had strong or clear pleasant or unpleasant feeling what was there either before or during that was related to the pleasantness, correlated, correlates with the pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality. What kind of control have you found around feeling? Right? So it, we're not helpless with feeling because uh, <clears throat> once feeling has arisen, then it becomes the object that's being known too. And so how we relate, how the mind is understanding or what perception, what object of experience the mind is attending to. So you can talk in your small group about modulating or changing the feeling tone of the moment, and what do you do to moderate, modulate, change the feeling tone? What have you learned? So when you're feeling bad about something and you're obsessing and you're just caught in a cycle... You know, maybe you put some music on and you listen, pay attention to the music and then the feeling tone shifts. Or maybe you bring in compassion. But talk about change in feeling tone. How does the feeling tone, how have you noticed the change and how in an empowering way that how you're relating is a present moment input to the feeling tone. And then just basically, it's related to this, is just the experience of 
feeling and suffering and feeling and freedom. So when you're feeling, uh, when you're having an experience of being feeling free, like not bound up, not caught up, happy. So what's the mind doing with feeling in those moments? And when you're really suffering, how is the mind relating to feeling in those moments? So those are just some things that might be interesting. And just in all of what I've just said in the last few minutes, what situations from your life seem relatively clear? Take a few more seconds now to hone in on something that you might want to share in your small group. Remembering when you're in your small group, sit close so you don't need to use loud voices. That way you'll be less distracting to the groups that are near you. Say your name. Even if you have a name tag, always begin by just saying your name out loud to each other. It's nice. It can be useful to decide on an order. If you're within earshot of this bell, you don't need a timer. If not, choose somebody who has a watch or a phone to time about three minutes per person, and then usually five to ten minutes for open discussion at the end, depending on how efficient the groups are. Remember, what is shared in the small groups, stay in the small groups. And like I said at the beginning of the session today, you're not, you're really in the mode of being present. You don't need to nod you don't need, you shouldn't be asking any questions to the person. They get their three minutes. Even if a lot of their three minutes is in silence, like they're just there reflecting, it's totally okay. You may start by speaking for a, a minute and then you may sort of not feel like you have anything more to say, but when it's your turn, you keep reflecting on whatever, what else you might feel right, might feel right to share. So you might be silent for a minute and there's still some time left and then you might start speaking again. And it's really up to the other two people to make it okay that they're silent, like to be relaxed, just sitting together, contemplating this, what you've been learning about feeling. And then after a person is shared, just thank each other. The person who spoke can thank the people for listening and people who are listening can thank the person for speaking and then the next person. And then there's usually at least five minutes at the end for just open discussion. And that's the time to ask clarifying questions if you want or to compare somebody's experience with your own experience that was similar. Any questions about the small group from people who are new? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.